chapter 11, Ron read to us a minute ago. This will be the text for a series of messages I want to do on these people, these characters that are mentioned in this chapter. It's a good study in the New Testament because it also is a study of the Old Testament. As you go through these names and these people, of course, they're Old Testament characters. And so from time to time, we will be going back to passages in the Old Testament to look at these people and look at uh, some of the events in their lives. Today, however, we're looking at kind of the introductory verses in verses 1 through 3 and verse 6. So we'll stay right here in these verses uh, this morning. And we're going to talk about faith. This is called the faith chapter. Uh, sometimes even the, the Bible's Hall of Fame, because these are men that walked by faith and with God. Uh, we know uh, uh, we are saved by grace through faith, right? We know that we walk by faith, not by sight. We know that faith is a victory that overcomes the world. The Bible has much to say about faith. Look with me just before chapter 11 in verse 38 where the writer quotes the book of, of uh, uh, Habakkuk, <laughs> excuse me, and says, Now the just shall live by faith. That's an Old Testament statement. If any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. And so Hebrews 11 gives us examples of people who believe, but believe to the saving of the soul, not just an earthly kind of faith or a human kind of faith. We know that there is a lot of that. There's human kind of faith, but there's a faith that saves. Now, as we look at these people, uh, we have to understand, too, that it is Old Testament faith in a very simple way, of course. We, we know the difference, and that is when you and I look at what God did for us in becoming a man, living a sinless life, dying for us on the cross, that he was buried and he rose again the third day and ascended back to heaven, to us that is a, that is a historical fact. We look back on it. We can prove it. Uh, eyewitnesses were there. God's word and those eyewitnesses declare it and wrote it down. But what if you lived 2,000 years before that fact? And the fact is that all people that ever were saved were saved by the sacrifice of Christ. He had to be their sin bearer. No one could be saved on their own. So what about these people that had to look forward so far uh, to that, who could not see it clearly? We'll start next week with Abel in verse 4, the, the child of Adam. What did he know about the cross and about death, burial, and resurrection? Uh, whatever God told him, but he didn't know uh, very much and nearly not as much as we do. But everyone was saved by grace. How can that be? Well, it is like this. These men, we will see, looked forward because God told them certain things. And whatever it is that God told them, they believed it. That's why all of these accounts will start with the, with the statement, by faith, Abel offered a perfect sacrifice. By faith, Enoch walked with God. By faith, Noah built an ark and so forth. Why? Because God gave them revelation of what they should do, and they believed God. Abraham's faith that we find repeated in the New Testament from Genesis 15 is often, and Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. 
And so that's what's happening here in this chapter. They are saved by faith in whatever God has showed them. They're saved by grace because God sees Christ on the cross, even for Abel and even for Enoch and Adam and the rest. And so they're saved by grace through faith, and it's not of themselves. It's the gift of God. They are, they're not saved by their own works. And when we see the things that they did, understand that you're not reading that these Old Testament saints were saved by the work that they did, but rather the work that they did is displaying their faith that they had in God. We'll see that, of course, throughout the chapter. Now, there, there, by the way, for us then, as New Testament believers, again, we are pointed backward. We're pointed back to the cross, back to the resurrection. We see it plainly. We can either accept it or deny it. We can apply it to ourselves or not apply it to ourselves. There's a natural kind of faith that all human beings have. We do a lot of things by faith, you know, uh, that we don't understand a lot of things that we don't necessarily see. I mean, all of you just sat down in a chair not long ago, and for some reason you had this belief, this faith that that chair would hold you and not fall to the ground. Uh, why did you do that? Experience or knowledge or whatever it is because you've done it a number of times? Uh, you know, I, I just drove uh, to Chicago and back last week. You're, when you're driving along the highway at 70 miles an hour, passing cars going the other way, you're glad that I have faith that the guy's going to stay in his lane, you know, and not come over in my lane. We, we do a lot of things by faith. But, you know, there's also religious faith that comes short of salvation. There are lots of people who believe in God who are not children of God. Just because you believe in God doesn't make you a Christian. The devils also believe and tremble, James will write. And so a lot of people believe in afterlife, that there's some heaven, that there's some hell, but uh, they don't do anything about it. They probably don't have the facts very clear anyway. And some people may believe that there was a man named Jesus who lived and died, and maybe they believe that somehow he went to some kind of afterlife, I don't know, but they're not saved. There's a lot of religious faith out there, but that's not the faith that saves. Jesus said of the Jews, you can discern the face of the sky. You know when it's going to be a good day or a bad day. You know when it's going to be good for fishing or bad for fishing, but you can't discern the signs of the time. So what is, it, what is the faith that saves? And we'll get closer to that answer in these few chapters as we begin. So as we look... Uh, at chapters, uh, or excuse me, verses 1, 2, and 3, I have on your bulletin three things I want you to see. The first one in verses 1 and 2, a confident faith. The second one is in verse 3, a knowledgeable faith, but then an expectant faith in verse 6. As you come to God, you expect Him to do something towards you. So let's look at these three. First of all, here is a confident faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I say a confident faith, and it's confident uh, in the sense that, you know, Paul can say, I'm not a, I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. That's confidence. 
And a believer has this kind of confidence. This verse tells us that you have confidence. Believing faith has confidence in two things. One is future things. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. You have a confidence in the future things. Now, the word substance, I'm reading the older version here, kind of interesting. Uh, the word hypostasis means to stand under, under and stand, to stand under something. So literally it means foundation. A foundation is something that stands under the wall. A foundation is something that stands under your house. And so it is the foundation. It could it could mean reality. It could mean acceptance. It could mean confidence. As a matter of fact, in chapter 3 and verse 14, it's translated with the word confidence where it says, we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. So we have a confidence uh, in Christ. And so saving faith is a certain confident faith in things hoped for. That is, things yet in the future. Do you have a confident faith that when you die, you know where you're going? How many times have you witnessed to somebody and tried to explain your faith, and you explain it by saying, do you know where you're going when you die? <laughs> because a believer does, has that kind of confidence. Remember Romans 8, uh, the classic passage where Paul says, we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. I mean, if, if it's present, then it's here. You're not hoping for it. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then we with patience wait for it. And so a confident faith is one that has patience waiting for the future. Look with me in, in chapter 11. You're looking at chapter 11 over to verse 13 where the writer will, will kind of pause for a few minutes and say these things about the, the men that he's mentioned so far, and ladies. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. In other words, they're looking for something in the future. They're confident that it's going to come. There is nothing so great as having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and knowing where you're going if you die, because we're all going to die. As a matter of fact, we don't know when that would be or how that would be, but it's going to happen to all of us. You have to have some confidence in that. We, we have talked recently in our messages about Paul being caught up to the third heaven and seeing the throne room of God, or John in the book of Revelation, how he was uh, caught up to the throne room of God. Imagine if you, could, if you were allowed by God to see heaven or hell. You could actually see it and then be taken back down to earth and say, now, spend the rest of your time serving me. You, you would serve with great confidence. They beat them. They, they tarred and feathered them. They put lashes on them. They tried to do everything they could to Paul or John, and they could not destroy their faith. Why? Because they had seen it. They were confident of things yet to come, things that they hoped for. So a faith, first of all, is something that uh, is confident in future things. Secondly, it's confident in invisible things. 
So the verse also says the evidence of things not seen. Things hoped for, but also things not seen. It's the evidence of it. It's a conviction about it. Things that are not seen. Over in verse 7, a similar thing is going to be said about Noah. Noah, of course, is the one that built the ark. By faith, Noah being warned of God of things not yet seen. Still, he moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. What is it that he had not seen? You know what it was? It was rain. <laughs> it had not rained on the earth yet. A mist had gone up from the ground. They lived in a virtual greenhouse. But God is going to make it rain until the whole world is flooded. Now, what if a guy's never seen it before? Never seen such a thing, but God says, this is what's going to happen, so you get ready for it. What would true faith do? It would believe in the things that are not seen. You know, we, we use rain, we use the word rain, and uh, when we do, we know exactly what we're talking about. Suppose, suppose I use the word gobbledygook and said, now, it's going to gobbledygook for 40 days. You get ready for it. <laughs> you know, we're saying, well, what is gobbledygook? You know, tell me what that is. No, I'm going to destroy the world with gobbledygook. You get ready for it. Noah went out and got ready for it. He didn't know what rain was. He didn't know what the meaning of that word was. But he got ready for it. So we're told in our verse that faith is the evidence of things that is not, not yet seen. Do you believe that there's life after death? You haven't seen it. Do you believe that there's a heaven and a hell? You haven't seen it. Do you believe that your loved one that passed away, that you put in the ground, that you will see again someday? This is evidence of things not seen. And do you believe that you'll see Jesus Christ, who was crucified, who was put in a grave, do you believe that, that he went to an unseen world, that the, the invisible world that we do not see? I do. Whom having not seen you love, <laughs> though now you see him not yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. So I believe it. So a confident faith is a faith in future things and invisible things. Then he kind of stops for a minute in verse 2 and explains, I think, for the sake of his Jewish readers, after all, this book is called Hebrews, right? For by it the elders obtained a good report. Now the elders to the Jews were these men mentioned here. Who are their elders? These Jewish ancestors, uh, beginning uh, even before Abraham, but uh, they were men of faith that led up to Abraham, and then you go to Moses, and then you go to the great saints of the Old Testament, and a lot of them that aren't even mentioned here. All of your elders obtained a good report, it says. Obtained a good report. The word report is the word for martyr. Martyreo often means a witness, obtained a good witness, a good report. But the fact is that a lot of these people died for their faith. And at the end of the chapter, he will say many of them died in, in awful ways. Why did, they, why did they die for things that they haven't yet seen? Because they had a confidence in them. They obtained a good witness, a good report. They were good martyrs for things they haven't even seen. 
I don't know if you've read much of church history when it comes to the martyrs. I mean, you could read, you could read Acts chapter 7, and, and, and here's the first martyr, Stephen, who's going to be stoned to death. But as they are throwing stones at him, he looks up into heaven, and he realizes God is there waiting for him, and he dies peacefully being stoned to death. His face as if it were the face of an angel, the writer says. And you read the stories of the martyrs and people are thinking, well, we're going to put an end to their faith. And so they tie them to a stake and they put fire around them and they begin to burn them. And they find out these people still hold to their faith and worship and praise God. Because faith is the evidence of future things and invisible things, as we have seen. So let me say to us as believers the world that we live in needs confident faith displayed by believers. And it needs it more now than ever before. There, there is so much gobbledygook out there. There are, so, there, there are so many religions. There are so many opinions and attitudes. And even our own Christianity uh, has more of a negative connotation than ever before. The world needs confident faith. And what is that? Number one, true trust. Not a fake religion. Not a fake trust. Not somebody who is not a true believer but just kind of fakes it. We need true trust. We need dedicated lives. We need believers who say, I will walk with God and I will do what he says to the best of my ability. I will dedicate my life to him. This world needs uh, to see faith that has a holy desire to be more like God than like the world, more like my Lord Jesus Christ than like the characters in this world. And this world needs a confident faith that has a dying confidence so that when we are faced with going from this life to the next, we do it with confidence and boldness and thankfulness to our God. The world needs to see that. And I hope that we'll all display that. So saving faith, first of all, is a confident faith. Second of all, it's a knowledgeable faith. So verse 3 says, through faith we understand things. <laughs> through faith we know certain things. The word noeo here comes from the word for the mind. We know with the mind. We understand certain things. Not just our feelings, not just an attitude, but we know with our mind. And so uh, it says, through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. And by the way, since he's going to point us backwards, who was there on day one of creation to say whether this happened or not? There was only one person who was there, and that was God. <laughs> not a scientist, not Charles Darwin, not anyone else. God was there. And so if God tells us what happened, he's the best eyewitness that there is because he was the one that was there. And so if God writes a book and says, this is what happened when I was there and what I did it, you better believe what God had said. Now, a knowledgeable faith knows, first of all, we know that God spoke the world into existence. Isn't it, isn't it interesting that here in this early, these early verses of this chapter on faith, that he's going to bring up the idea of creation. And he's going to say, by faith, we can understand how the worlds were made. And, and yet in our day, of course, there's a huge debate over evolution and creation and has been for all of our lifetime and, and longer. 
And yet here, here's the Bible itself saying, when God says something like, here's how he created the world, you can take it as fact because of your faith. Isn't that an interesting thing? Well, when he says that the worlds were framed, the word frame means to knit together, to unite, to complete. And as you read the early chapters of Genesis, you see that the, the seas, the mountains, the land masses, then the, the creatures, the, the vegetation, everything is framed, fitly framed together by God, but notice by, it says, the Word of God. By the Word of God? Now, let me give you a little detail here. The word here, rhema, means a word from God. So, though we understand this Bible is the Word of God, it's not the picture that there was a Bible back then and the Bible made the world. As a book, the Bible made the world. But rather it's saying, God spoke, and when God spoke, the world came into existence because God wanted it to. Now, it's called the Word of God because the Word of God is any time God spoke. When God spoke, it was the Word of God. And we call this Bible the Word of God because we believe that God inspired it from the spirit of his mouth. And the words that those writers wrote were God's words. And so this is the word of God. But when God spoke, he spoke the world into existence. Listen, listen to Psalm 33, verses 5 through 9. Psalm 33, 5 through 9. He loved righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathered the waters of the sea together as a heap. He layeth up the depth in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. By the word of God, the, the earth was framed. When God speaks, folks, it happens. I think there's an interesting quote by Henry Morris, whom I often quote. Uh, I read his commentaries and his books on creation, and he and John Whitcomb wrote the Genesis flood in 1961 that really was the, was, was the precursor to the whole creation movement because these two early scientists uh, wrote about creation in a day when it wasn't all that popular at all. He was a professor of hydraulic engineering uh, and chairman of the Department of Civil Engineering at Virginia Polytechnical Institute and at Southwest Louisiana University. But he's a Christian, and he begins to write about creation. He says this, thus, he says, the remarkable fact will emerge that the scientific model of origins, parenthesis, developed without reference to the Bible, end of parenthesis, will ultimately be found to agree fully with the biblical record of origins when the latter is developed without reference to science. This has to be so, of course, because the God who made the world also wrote the word. <laughs> 
If God spoke the world into existence by his word, and then by his word he also wrote this book, doesn't it make a, isn't it right that this word is the same as creation? This word can't contradict creation. And what he's saying is, I as a scientist found out there is no contradiction between true science and the word. Maybe between somebody's theory and the word, but not true science. So we understand, we know that God spoke the world into existence. That's bedrock for us, just like he said, I will come again as bedrock for us. Because when God says anything, even in a controversial world, we can believe it. And that is the kind of saving faith that we have. Now, secondly, knowledgeable faith is also knowledgeable. We know that, that the things which we see came from things that we can't see. So verse 3 goes on and says, so that the things which are seen were not made of the things which do appear. Can you see God? No. <laughs> but did God create this world that we see? Yes. That's what he's saying. The things which we can see were made by things which we can't see. That's saving faith. Some people, I guess, would say, that sounds ridiculous to me. But listen to Romans 1, 19 and 20. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, God has showed it unto them, for the invisible thing, the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. We understand the eternal power and Godhead by the power which he made things. And that's what this verse is saying to us also. And so, we understand, it, it, uh, the same word meaning in our mind, we understand these things. Now, evolution or science is based on things that are observable. Really, science is. I don't want to say evolution is, but science is based on things that are observable. But creation is based on things that are observable and things that are not. <laughs> things that we can see and things that we can't see. A double reason for believing that God created the world in the way that he did. So it's a great thing. Now, you know, there, there's a, there are a number of songs that come and go. You know that I like reading old songbooks. I don't know why. Uh, but, yeah, I do, because they're nice. It's good poetry. But I like John W. Peterson. He's a writer of our lifetime, and a lot of us as young people sing his songs in our churches and his cantatas and so forth. There's an old song that he put into his early books it didn't make it into later books called God of Everlasting Glory. It's written in 1968, which is the year I graduated from high school. And uh, uh, in those days, uh, the battle was just engaging with the postmodern mind and the evolutionist and so forth. And, and so here's a writer that was trying to express these things in the words of a song. I'll read it to you as poetry. God of everlasting glory. He says, God of everlasting glory, filling earth and sky, everywhere thy wonders open to our searching eye. In our telescopic probing light years from our world, in the atom's theoried structure, science has unfurled. As we push man's frontiers forward into outer space, reaching for the stars and planets, still thy hand we trace. 
in the laboratory's silence where the secrets hide. There the marvels of creation are for us supplied. In the open book of nature, faith remains unmoved. Patterns of the master builder by each fact are proved. So with reverent hearts we ponder all the grand design of the universe around us wrought by hands divine. Through the course of human history has thy purpose run, and in substance we have seen thee in thy glorious Son. He it was who came to save us in our hopes to raise God of everlasting glory, thy great name we praise. Wouldn't it be a good song to sing? It's a song that, that is based on the verse that we're talking about here. This is the God of glory. Now, we've, we've looked at verses 1, 2, and 3. We're going to look at verse 6. But we've, let me say that there, there is an irreducible minimum to saving faith. When we as New Testament believers are going to look back on the fact that Jesus died for us, you have to believe, number one, who he is, and number two, what he did. And you have to accept that with confidence and with knowledge. Do you believe that he was, that he was God in the flesh, or do you believe he was some kind of an angel? I was speaking to a Jehovah's Witness, uh, actually a son of a good friend of mine not long ago, and he believes that, Je that, that uh, Jesus is an angel. And I said, you, you know, I wouldn't want to go into eternity placing my hope and confidence in an angel. Is Jesus Christ God or not? Is he Lord Jesus Christ or not? Is he the Lord? Is he God in the flesh? But secondly, not only who he is, but what he did. Did he die for you in your place? Did he die for your sins? Did he die because he loved you and you cannot save yourself? And was he put in the grave and they thought that was all of it, but after three days and three nights, he rose bodily out of the grave, spent 40 days here and ascended back to the right hand of the Father. Do you believe that that happened for you? Now that's an irreducible minimum, I call it. You can, you can have a lot of other things that you believe about Christianity, but if you deny those two things, you cannot be a Christian. And yet, there's still something lacking. Because some people may say, well, yeah, okay, I, I believe all that, I agree all that, but I, I'm not a Christian. Why is that? Because the third thing, the fiducia, is the receiving of it. The fiducia is to say, all right, I believe who he is and what he did, and I will accept it for my salvation. That's why we call it a personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, a born-again faith. I will take it for myself. I will take it for my faith, my salvation. And so we move on to verse 6, which helps us a little more in that regard. An expectant faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. What is it to please God? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's impossible to be accepted by God. You cannot walk into God's presence and say, I'm such a good person, I deserve to be in heaven. You won't make it. You can't say, well, I think I'll be all right when I die because really I'm better than most people that I've met. All of sin to come short of the glory of God. To, to, to please God, it means God has accepted you, and the only way you're going to be accepted is through the righteousness of Jesus Christ and not your own righteousness. 
Number one, he that cometh to God must believe what? First of all, that God exists, he says. And, and you know, that kind of says everything. That's the bottom line to everything. I, I believe in God, so I believe in everything God ever said. And I believe in everything he ever did. And if he says he created the world, I believe it. If he says that he, he came to earth through a virgin birth, I believe it. I would believe anything that God did. He's God. And so since he revealed to us what he did, why shouldn't I accept that? And he died, he was buried, he rose again, he ascended to heaven, he's coming back someday. Why shouldn't I believe that? If he tells me that there's a heaven and a hell, and I'm going to one of the two places, I believe it. And I'm going to prepare for, to go to heaven. So you have to believe that God exists and that is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. There's a, there's a reward for evil. It's called the judgment of God. There, there's a day when God will judge the world and judge men's sins. And people who stand before him thinking, well, I'm pretty good, will see how short they come of the glory and holiness of God. He's a rewarder of that too. But he's a rewarder of faith. When you come to him and say, I can't do it on my own, Lord. I'm a sinner. I have no hope. But I'll hold on to Jesus Christ and accept his righteousness. God says, then that's the faith that I will reward. A rewarder of them that diligently seek him. You know, there are those verses in the book of Acts where Paul is out on missionary journeys and he's preaching. On Mars Hill, he says that they should seek the Lord if happily they might feel after him and find him though he be not far from every one of us. You know what the sinner is doing? He's feeling after God. He, he's got blinded eyes. He, he knows he needs something. He doesn't know what it is. If you can picture a blind man or somebody in a dark room where you can't see anything and you're feeling around trying to find what is there, that's what a lost person is like in this world. But it's necessary. It's necessary that a person comes under conviction of their sin and says, I, I need that, Lord. I need your salvation. I'm in the dark. I don't know where to go. If we diligently seek him, in chapter 15, verse 17 of Acts, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles of whom my name is called. So let me say this. Number one, this true faith that saves understands that you must give an account to God. Anyone with any kind of sense comes to that realization. You're going to meet your creator. You're going to give an account to him. Number two, you know that you are a sinful creature. You know that you can't stand before a holy God with your own righteousness. And number three, you find out that God loves you and gave his son for you to be your substitute, to die in your place. And then you come to him, placing your faith in Jesus Christ, since he's the one that died. It's his righteousness that God will accept. And you make him your savior. <laughs> he saves you from that sin. That is saving faith. And when you come to God by faith, you believe that, and you diligently seek him, and he will reward you with eternal life. I like the word come, because to me, the word come is the greatest 
invitation word in the world. He that cometh to God must believe. You know, we use that word a lot in our language. Come on over to my house, you know. Come, come with me. Come to this. Come out. Come in. We use that word always as invitations. But God says, Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come, he says, and take my yoke upon you and learn of me. And so here, if you come to him, he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And if you can say in your mind and heart, I remember when I came. I remember when I was groping in the darkness. I remember when I responded and said, yes, I will come. And, and that prayer that you offered to him and asking him to be your savior, he rewarded and gave you eternal life. Isn't that a great thing? You have that confidence. You have that, that expecting faith. If you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, do that today uh, while God is, is still waiting for you and God has patience for you. Stand now with me, if you will. And as we stand and, and uh, go to the Lord in prayer in a minute, we'll think about these things and we'll ask him to speak to our hearts in the way that he wants to. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this great chapter in the book of Hebrews. Thank you for people of faith that we can look and see examples of. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you mostly for the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, you who became one of us, that you might die in our place, that your righteousness might be accepted and we can have that righteousness placed upon us. We thank you and praise you. And that's why we're here today. And that's why uh, we worship you. And that's why we walk by faith with you. Father, I pray wherever this voice is heard, whether today or uh, in a recording somewhere, that if someone hears it and does not know Christ as Savior, today would be the day when they say, yes, I, I need to accept that. I need Jesus Christ as my Savior. So I pray you do your work in hearts that need to be done. Bless us today as we have seen uh, a beginning, the example of faith. Help us to be this kind of people to the generation in which we live. We'll thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. So we sing a song of invitation. Our invitation is always open as we